the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our discussion, please throw us a buck at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. We appreciate all the support you guys can give us. And thanks for tuning in today. We are continuing with our third episode on anti-Oedipus. We are now in chapter two. We are doing sections three through five, which is pages one or pages 68 through, I believe, 105, 106. Yeah, 68 through 106. So we're going to go through the three sensitivities today. Coop, how are you doing today, brother? I'm good. I've been listening to new metal all morning, specifically Limp Biscuits, uh, Nookie, to get in the right fr- frame of mind for the libidinal economics of this episode. This is one of the few fundamental disagreements that we've ever had. <laughs> I, uh, on new metal? I, yeah, on new metal. That's that's where we had to go all the way down that fucking list to get to, get to a disagreement. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, when, when I was, you know, an adolescent just hitting puberty, Limp Bizkit was like, that was the shit you could not get away from it. Yeah. I mean, in the South, like four or five years before that, it was... Uh, achy breaky heart and shit so like right. you just see how musical trends change but yeah, yeah. limp biscuit i you know it's just not my cup of tea but um even listening to this uh, particularly because of uh the new hbo documentary right, right. yeah the woodstock 999 documentary Which, i think is a, a fascinating pretty wild st- it's a fascinating study of libidinal economics and it's I, say pretty, that, I say that in all fucking i say that in all seriousness honestly. i know yeah i'm I, completely I, serious if you want to see desiring production in action there it is if you want proof, if you want real proof of desiring production, go watch that documentary. It's all there. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, violence, rape, destruction, etc. Revolt, yeah, insurrection. A lot, a lot of uh, reactionary investments of the unconscious, one could say. You know, the the, the vibe. I like, how, however much I don't really like Moby, I thought his description of like, Man, I've been I've done so many concerts. I could totally get on a venue like hundred feet away. It's yeah, like, everybody oh, those kept are, saying those that. are those are bad vibes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I mean, it's it's definitely worth watching. But yes, yeah, so the sections we have today are the connective synthesis of production, the disjunctive sy- synthesis of recording, and the conjunctive synthesis of consumption, consummation, which you know in French is is just one word which is kind of in- interesting that they have one word for consumption and consummation, right? Because, you know, one is normally thought of as primarily, you know, eating and the other is, well, fucking. Right. So um, the consuming a type of metaphor for a certain cannibalism, cannibalism of the partial objects. And of the primordial father, right? After murdering right. him, you know, you, you sort of incorporate his 
authoritative parental essence by eating eating them. And there is a section, there's a little part in here where they do talk about where he brings up the totemen taboo, and I say he, they, the they. crowd <laughs> of Deleuze and Guattari, uh, they, yes, uh, they, 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 they discuss, you know, the, the primordial father being murdered. And, you know, there's later in Anti-Oedipus, what's really cool is they'll look at Levi Strau, you know, who, who takes up the incest prohibition and the ritual surrounding that in terms of kinship structures and, you know, Bataille's second, vo- second volume of The Accursed Scare- Share begins with that too. And it is funny though, he's like, I'm going to walk through and break down Levi Strau very quickly, but this is boring shit, <laughs> you know, but, but there's some, there's like a pot of gold at the end of the, the boring rainbow. One thing I wanted to bring out before we start looking at points, and I know you've got a lot of notes that I would love to, to go through with you in terms of the way I, I try to distinguish connection, disjunction and conjunction is when Deleuze is working through his version of serialism three years earlier in Logic of Sense, he looks at esoteric words, particularly from Carol. Like, for example, there's the portmanteau word, you know, which combines there's frumious and chortle and um, and some other words that, that are portmanteau words. But anyway, there's Deleuze identifies esoteric words and how they relate to series and their interactions. And so connection is, is basically succession, right? It's, it's basically and, 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 as they put in the first chapter. And then disjunct, or, and then conjunction for him is coexistence, right? Kind of simultaneity, simultaneity. And then disjunction is the ramification of series, which is the either or, 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 or. That's just important to note that Deleuze is kind of continuing on and keeping some terminology from logic of sense that, that the translators don't really point out. And neither does Deleuze himself kind of point out. He doesn't like quote logic of sense or something. He's already moved on. Just thinking about how Deleuze takes some of those, uh, some of that terminology and plops it down here. I think it shows a kind of arbitrariness, but there is a, I think a connection to something that Deleuze is both holding on to and getting rid of, right? In terms of the concept of series interacting is still important, but the the kind of philosophy of serialism or just the working through of serialism, I think that this is another step Deleuze takes forward in the post of post-structuralism, right? In terms of, because really logic of sense is kind of that precipice um, of On the engaging structuralism and, and yeah. sort of going beyond it. Now, is Logic of Sense your favorite of Deleuze's solo work? Maybe I've heard it, you say that. Or I find it to be the most enjoyable. You know, one enjoyable. thing that one thing that that always surprised me, and I've said this at least once before, but I'll say it again really quickly: is how little it seems Deleuze has weight in literature departments. Right. You know, I mean, uh, that's true. Yeah. He I mean, has given... little pockets. He has little <laughs> yeah. pockets that 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 of literature departments that that like him. But you know, Derrida maybe was always true. The, yeah. And there's a way of applying Derrida that's very concrete. But yeah, I mean, in terms of Deleuze's interest in right. literature and his citation, I mean, you just look at the the Antiochus we've read till now. Think of all the authors that they that they uh, cite and work through. So that's that's why I like Logic of Sense because so because not only the form of the series that you know as you go throughout, you're going to see a kind of rhizome. You know, you're going to see all these different quote unquote chapters interacting and and there's something then a kind of a prototype for 
the ideal of the plateau in a thousand plateaus, right? And how they are like the rhizomes or like the series kind of interconnecting and they are, it's not a chronological succession. Yeah. You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to read cover to cover and uh, you know, they, they say it should be listened to like a, like a record, which, <laughs> you know, if you hopefully one day we'll get into a thousand plateaus, but I mean, it's, it's kind of, there's something to that where sometimes certain plateaus you really, come back to, to, to try to um, give you a foothold to look at the rest of the book because you can kind of pick it up anywhere. And that makes it very frustrating and hard to read, but also uh, enjoyable in a way too. And I think that with Antietipus, that's definitely different. The mode of writing is, is on the one hand, somewhat more experimental. On the other hand, that's just in certain areas, right? right? Because obviously on the whole, A Thousand Plateaus is much more. But um, but on the other hand, I do think that it, it builds slowly, linearly, right? Yeah, and, yeah. But, but they are always like kind of like looking forward and looking back, right? So when we do focus like we are uh, on little sections at a time to do justice to the whole work, it, it's it's good to be kind of trying to think think at least back to what we've read and I'll sometimes point to like where this might be leading forward. Yeah. Do you want to start with uh, one of your first notes or maybe something that struck you uh, out of these passages? Yeah. I've got a little bit of just kind of my experience encountering with the text. And then I thought you set us up beautifully. Like, I don't know if that was intentional. And my first, my first quote that I pulled that I think there's a very good comparison to, I think what we do on the podcast that I'll get to, but just a couple of things first off that I wanted to say, just going back to your point about Deleuze and literature departments, I just want to mention again, and you know, I've said this multiple times, but I think Proust and Signs from Deleuze is magnificent and just incredible, I think. Incredible lit crit, you know. It's beautifully written. It's amazing. So I mean, I'm blown away by that. I was blown away by the his prose in, in that book. So I definitely recommend yeah, and there's Anyone a there's a, interested and hasn't engaged with it, even if you haven't read Proust necessarily. Right. You know, he does. That's cite, what I was going to say. He cites the text. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing piece of uh, lit crit for sure. It's incredible the deftness with which he writes about literature, because right. there are some references in at the in, in Andy Oedipus to literature that even in these sections that yes, I, you you would you would need to read a little bit more like the, the mm-hmm. Joyce uh, and the Beckett quotes and stuff. Right. Like I, I would need to revisit what Malloy, which I never finished. But on the other hand, like you said, Proust and Signs, you you know, it's, it's fascinating how well he writes about literature and extrapolates Proust's kind of philosophical import, just import of thinking and, and is able to do so in a way that you don't feel lost in his navigation of the novel. Yeah. Another thing the first time around reading this section of the chapter, I was, I mean, and this is a function of just the book was written in what published in 72, you know, the Oedipus critique is kind of boring a little bit. I think in some ways, first go around, I was kind of like, eh, you know, like, I don't know, it doesn't feel as relevant now, perhaps because psychoanalysis never took such a hold in America. That's fair. I mean, I I do think that while it did take hold in certain forms, especially disciples of Anna Freud. And um, right. I do think, you know, uh, the fact has to be that Lacan's celebrity status by this time, which we've talked about too right. on, the, on the podcast and his just intellectual 
gigantism. I mean, right. literally, like he 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 was the Fred Durst huge, of his time. I mean, he was such a huge force in intellectual thinking at the time. Right. But also Sartre too kind of popularized a a, a distaste for psychoanalysis. He yeah. wrote very uh, heavily against it and makes some good points, even though I think that his kind of rejection of the unconscious or at least his incorporation of it into a Cartesian framework or a post-Cartesian framework I kind of err on the side of Freud, but I see what he's doing. But he does have val- valid points about its conservatism. So, I mean, same with Foucault, right? And he, what? Uh, his uh, Madison Civilization or um, what's it? Yeah, I was going to ask. I forget the chronology his, of Foucault's yeah, work. Yeah, he publishes that in 61. Okay. Right. And so, but, but you know, Althusser is also dealing with Marx questions and really does seem like the 60s, especially with structuralism, is trying to grapple with the giants of Freud and Marx. I mean, this is why we, we've gone from libidinal economy to now anti-Oedipus, and we're trying to do tandem readings of Symbolic Exchange and Death by Baudrillard, right? These, this trilogy that we've talked about, you know, I do think that that shows the, the, the sort un- of hyper-relevance of psychoanalysis in, in the French tradition that we, we, we kind of are lacking in the American. Yeah. Ex- well, except insofar as we've imported Freud and, um, and Lacan yeah. and, and other thinkers. I think it might have been in the symbolic exchange and death episode that I mentioned that, you know, even on our discussion we did a few weeks ago with Todd McGowan, you know, he was, you know, as a Lacan, Hegel, Hegel, Lacanian, et cetera, Hegel, Lacanian, I don't know what you want terminology, but, um, you know, he was kind of saying that, you know, we're, he's not so much in disagreement about the Oedipus critique specifically. Yes. In, in anti-Oedipus, you mean? Right, right. I do think that it's, you know, it is true that, we are like, I mean, they, the authors themselves say this, Dulles and Guattari themselves say this, like we're tired of hearing about castration. We're tired of yeah. hearing of all these Oedipal readings, right? I mean, they do start uh, this third section with this kind of implicit critique of all the literary analysts that were so quick to psychoanalyze the author, which is both a very crude means. I mean, it's not even a really a literary reading, right? It's this crude crushing use of Freudian psychoanalysis and the, and the most, I mean, cause even Freud's readings of literature are, are subtle, subtler than what they're critiquing. This simple thing where it's like, Oh, well, you know, Proust's, you know, his kind of mommy issues and shit like that, like reading, reading, you, you, you totally distort the novel and its beauty. And this is why I think they, they, uh, they start, here with the three sentences by talking about Proust and how Proust kind of gives us a framework. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is as a somewhat of a, you know, I don't know, a student of storytelling for lack of a better word to me, I think psychoanalysis is, is an amazing tool for the writer because you can sort of understand it's very good in terms of developing a framework for this sort of complexity, like a, a very well-rounded character, the sort of contradictions within the subject is, to me, I think a very interesting toolbox for a writer who's trying to understand like the sort of psychopolitics of why people behave the way they do and character motivations and arcs and how that sort of develops. I think that's sort of interesting. That's one point. I do want to come back though and say that Upon the second reading is when the the genius of it, the beauty of it, the libidinal economics really came to fore and made themselves very evident in a way that they hadn't the first through my first reading. 
And so I even noticed, you know, in terms of the style of the prose, there are sections, you know, they're not so committed to the sort of artistry as Leotard is in libidinal economy fully, like as far as the aesthetic goes, but you do see sort of flourishes here. And you can even say like, there's a bit, you could probably take sections that we read. You could probably fool me in a, in a blind taste test as to whether that's Leotard or Deleuze and Guattari. Some sections you might be confused. I think other sections you'd be like, yes. there's no way Leotard right, right, right. would make a claim that would build an argument. I mean, there is a way in which he, you know, Leotard, the labyrinthine, his way of drawing out the labyrinth and its foldings and twistings in, in the band is much different than, you know, what Deleuze and Guattari find in um, either in Borges or um, Borges isn't cited here, but in logic of sense, you know, Deleuze is talking about the, the straight line being the most, the infinite straight line being like the, the most complex labyrinth. He gets that from, for Borges, but he oh, works it out in his, I like that again, literature showing that it has as much worth for Deleuze right. and Guattari as philosophical works. I mean, yeah. the fact that, and there's something a little bit schizo about that, right? Freud would probably want, you know, to, you know, when he goes into a reading of, of lit, he, he tries to like not make apologies for like, I'm going to be doing a reading, but mm -hmm. kind of, he, he wants to circumscribe that and say there and say, therefore, analogously, we can extrapolate. Whereas I think with Bills and Guattari, it's not about analogy, right? It's that there is something. Right. It's not about the, metaphor even. Right. The right. art machine is already kind of plugged into the real right. as they yeah. understand it. And it's not about interpreting its meaning, which I think brings us to your <laughs> first quote. Uh, very nice. Nicely done. Yeah. I just want to, before we get into the first quote, I just want to mention that I, you know, that common, I mean, I just love that quote from Guattari that is talking about how Joyce, Proust, Etc. Beckett, I forget Kafka. You know, he kind of goes on and says, "I forget what was that in." That was in. Um, That's the first chapter of part two of Machinic Unconscious. And he kind of compares them to, or he says, almost says like, "This lit these writers are doing philosophy better than sort of the philosophers." But then he also references interpretation of dreams as a great work of literature as well. That's right, as a great novel, and he says that. In Search of Lost Time is a schizoanalytic monograph as such. So it's not about analyzing. It's not about schizoanalyzing it, right? It already yeah. is this work of schizoanalysis. And that, it, in that it's, it's, it's a false dichotomy to put on one side. Philosophy like, versus literature. Guattari's example is science. Like you can't put Newton and Darwin on one side and, and Proust yeah. on the other. Like there's the real and there's fiction. Yeah. Um, for him, at least, at least insofar as we are not, just concerned with meaning or we don't see in search of lost time as just this little fantasy world that we escape into. These know, are different machines. Had, These are different yes. machines, but they're still within the same, uh, I don't know, plane of eminence or some shit. Yeah. Or he, they would say it's the same machine under different regimes, right? They might say something like that, right? That, gotcha. That's, that's why they say so desiring production and social production, right? They're just, it's just, um, they're just different regimes. And then of course, my joke on that is always that, Leotard's uh, libidinal economy is a great work of uh, fiction as well. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that that's almost his duty and his honor as a philosopher is maybe what, maybe his, what gave him the shame of having to sort of disown it after the fact. Yeah. And we've talked about that too. Right. Uh, the, the evil book, right. <laughs> uh, which is why our Leotard series is called Wicked Leotard. 
just to kind of make the point that we're talking about. Yeah, I think. absolutely. Which I got to say, again, you, you set us up beautifully for this. Um, I'm very impressed with the way that you did that. That was, uh, it's just, it's just all that was a good forethought, man. That was like, it's, a, that was it's very all impressive. It's, it's the machine of unconscious. Right. Uh, it, yeah. This is actually from the end of the section, but I don't know. This just, I thought this would be a good way to jump off into the text because this sort of reminded me of the type of the style of conversation that we have and the type of engagement that we have with these texts. So I'll read here. For reading a text is never a scholarly exercise in search of what is signified, still less a highly textual exercise in search of a signifier. Rather, it is a productive use of the literary machine, a montage of desiring machines, a schizoid exercise that extracts from the text its revolutionary force. The exclamation, so it's, or mediation of igitur on race and an essential relationship with madness. Yeah, I haven't read Meyer May's Igator, and I almost went down that rabbit hole. So I'm going <laughs> to put that to the side, and yeah. but we will talk about the, the racial stuff, which we get in section five on the conjunctive. I mean, they say in the next section on the recapitulation of the three syntheses that, you know, it's not about meaning, right? It's about production. This is the same polemic that they right. raised against Freud when he made the unconscious into a classical theater, right? Representing. It's not about representing. It's about, it's not about what the unconscious represents. It's about what it produces, right? I think that that for them is fundamental to their argument. They're asking the question posed by desire is not what does it mean, but rather how does it work? I think that's interesting. And I think one of the big, to me, the images that stands out from this portion or this portion of the chapter is how Oedipus closes off, puts this double bind in place. That's right. On it almost, and I think here too, like this is how I saw it. It was almost clamping off the libidinal band at both ends is the yes. image that I got in terms of in a sort of mix of Leotard, Deleuze, and Guattari, and what's going on through Oedipus is it's sort of clamping off those flows of desire and trapping them within this. I don't even know how to describe that. I well, know you or somewhat, or like this right. swamp, or I, I don't. I don't know exactly how to. Phrase well, they that. say they call it an expressive milieu because to stick with the representational, asking what the signifiers are, asking what is signified, asking what it means, right. is this question about what does the unconscious express. Because, you know, with Freud, so much of psychoanalysis with the talking cure and with just the, the way the case history works, you know, on the, on the one hand, it's like a detective novel, right? On, you know, on the other hand, it is, it is this more Bildungsroman, right? This kind of educational novel, this arc of, of learning that psychoanalysis, essentially then one of its parts is about telling stories. And I think that that's why, again, why, why, Deleuze and Guattari are so keen on making clear that that the art machine is is also function because when they when they say there's not this optimism that psychoanalysis is is the only thing right but they they don't share a pessimism that that they don't share that pessimism that sort of moving beyond the Oedipal repressions can't take place within analysis right because Guattari is committed to making the revolution, revolutionary machine and the analog machine kind of work in tandem, mm -hmm. work together for, for new degrees of freedom or whatever you want to call it. And I think that the artistic machine is, is integral to it too. I think that they could have easily said that in the same breath, in that same sentence, without skipping a beat. Because 
I mean, even, you know, you could go, it could be Deleuze's sort of Nietzschean heritage is his, his alliance with Nietzsche, because, you know, in the birth of tragedy, Nietzsche's first published work, he is asking this question about the justification of existence or life. And he's based on the world and that the world's justification, if it has one, is an, is an aesthetic one. So this question about the role of art and literature and the literary machine, as they call it, or the art machine, you know, as we could say, just as, I mean, they're just different shades. You know, I, I think that that's important and that, and that for them, that's the, that's the easiest domain to look at to say, how is it working? How is it producing effects? Now, is that an example of how one of the syntheses function in that way? And in, in terms of how, how the discourse of science and the discourse of art or literature sort of interact? Well, it would be the, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you could say it involves all three, but it would, it would definitely involve this inclusive disjunction. Right. Right. In, in the terms of, okay, I mean, yeah. Guattari is trying to ask if In Search of Lost Time is a schizoanalytic monograph, and we think of all his fucking crazy diagrams. <laughs> but if Proust's novel is, it's, I mean, as we see here in these sections, it's got obviously a literary and artistic side, but it's got, it's got sides uh, that explore the, the role of consciousness, right? The signs of love. So it's, you know, it's got a hermeneutic machine. It's got right. a fucking erotic machine. It's got uh, obviously highly charged political machines. We see them talk about Proust incorporating current events like the Dreyfus affair and anti-Semitism and, and World War One across this. I mean, it's what, several thousand pages long, but across the novel and how the families are sort of immersed in social forces that are animating their desire and aren't just external to it, right? I think that that's one of the fundamental things, again, desiring production and social production being being infrastructural. So yeah, this I guess that too is what then you would have to say that there's a meta-linguistic statement where just like Proust's novel, this anti-Oedipus does encompass some of that disjunctive thing where it's it's either analytic or revolutionary or you know it's just that it's it's trying to include all those disjunctions right but also connect them all right i mean the yeah, the, yeah. it is it is saying and 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 yeah yeah because it's not necessarily a contradiction right i think that's yeah. where the interesting thing about how the syntheses are series that affect each other, right? Right. Um, yes. They're not exactly. necessarily circular, but this is why the connective chapter or chapter, the connective subchapter, the the connective synthesis part three begins immediately with a question of disjunction, with a question of recording. They, I'm thinking of how when they they basically say that the parental or familial use of the senses of recording extends into a conjugal use of the connective senses. So like they are in interaction. We saw that in chapter one too, right? That, that there is a production of each that's kind of internal imminent to each, right? They're not, all, they're not just external to each other. So that's where, you know, when you say that, that Proust novel or anti-Oedipus are these different machines and they're mobilized Specifically, they're mobilized to the front, to the vanguard at certain points when they want to focus on, on a literary example. But they're never not thinking about the other machines. They're never not yeah. like excluding them from the analytic and the, and the revolutionary. So there's not this, 
there is a that's one of the reasons why it can be frustrating is so much going on at the same time but that's part of the that's part of the also one of its strong points because it is about this our little subject as desire on the body without organs or whatever you want right. to call it our little you know we are we are trying to as individuals but also collectively like we are now talking about it we are uh, trying to derive effects that can be the little share of pleasure and enjoyment but also hopefully enlightenment and sort of catalysts of desire catalysts of desire and production that that we they honestly want us to take something from the work and have it affect us and not just to ask what they mean all the time. Right. I think this is why, like, I think Leotard takes that to the extreme that this is what we were talking about, right? That he's not asking the question of meaning, right? His, his book is going to seduce you, betray you. It's going to punch you in the face. Sometimes it's going to run away from you. I mean, there's, there's ways that Leotard, you know, is, taking this question of producing effects and not asking the question of meaning even further than I think Deleuze and Guattari, because sometimes they will want to slow down and say, okay, you know, let's think about what the principles of inclusive disjunction is, right? Let's think about the either or, or let's think about the implications for our understanding of how Oedipus is this, you know, this ghastly monstrous, well, as you said, I mean, they say Oedipus, it's all in the double bind. And you brought that up earlier, right? That's the, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's, <laughs> it's, it's the question of how these, what they say, these illegitimate uses of the syntheses, mm-hmm. we could say this transcendent conception of the unconscious, you know, as Kant might say, has to be remedied by a materialist and transcendental conception of the unconscious. Okay. This is why they turned to Kant and his critique his, you know, they don't talk about his three critiques here, but they they turn to Kant and his method of, you know, finding the imminent criteria of um, finding the transcendental sort of point of view for these things in order to counteract, in order to counteract Oedipus, right? In order to counteract this, the double bind we find ourselves in. And uh, I will say one thing about the double bind is it, it's interesting that they get this from Bateson who writes this in the 50s with couple other uh, doctors and, you know, he goes on to write Steps to an Ecology of Mind, which is probably his most famous work. And they also get the notion of plateau from Bateson ah, interesting. Uh, in terms of a thousand plateaus, right? A plateau is sort of a self vibrating region of intensity that doesn't enter into a climax. Yeah. And it does. It's, it's Bateson's working with examples from uh, Balinese culture, where if two young men say have a disagreement, instead of their conflict being resolved, is kind of brought to a leader and kept at this height and negotiated in a way that's not about resolving the conflict, but about kind of maintaining it at a certain pitch. I think that that's the double bind is definitely something that we can go into if yeah. you would like. I definitely do want to come back to that because I almost feel like maybe some of the double bind stuff is relevant relative to Baudrillard and symbolic exchange and death. But just to put a flag there, I wanted to go back just quickly to mention that I think it's interesting, the scientific machine, the literature, the literary machine, etc., in terms of how these are sort of, in the kind of modernist or a modernist schema, these are, you could consider these perhaps phyla, like they're different phyla, right? They're these phyla 
And what Deleuze and Guattari, I think, are trying to do is deterritorialize that a little bit and say, because even though maybe the scientific machine, the scientific machine is not consciously aware of how it's influenced by the literary machine and vice versa, that relation, that circular flow is, is always in place, whether it be consciously or unconsciously, obviously, probably more unconsciously in the way that those modernity tries to silo off these discourses. There's a disavowal of that reciprocal, I guess that, dis, that conjunctive or disconjunct, disjunctive synthesis yeah. that we talked a little bit about. To try uh, to make it exclusive and restrictive. Right. Yes. Yes. And then just briefly you reference, you know, referencing Bateson and the plateau, it just came to me that that plateau sort of is the, is again, this sort of topological, I hate to say metaphor, right? Because it's not, it's not. <laughs> They'd want to say figure, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I think that's interesting too. Like I hadn't really considered, I don't know why I hadn't considered the plateaus having this topographical significance. Yeah. And they're, they're sort of, this is why the plateaus are, are, are they resonate and ramify like series and, and like the rhizome, but they resonate together. There's this internal resonance between them. And this is why, you know, the joke is obviously there's what, I mean, I, I was promised a thousand plateaus. fifteen, <laughs> And it's, it's the fact that, that thinking of each chapter as a self-contained plateau is wrong. Right. Yes, exactly. So that you know, goes to the same uh, thing. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, in any case, one of the things that, that I guess we want to talk about the, the three synthesis, just the only thing I, before we look at each or we talk about each and show how they're interrelated in the complex of, of Oedipus, you know, they, they want to say that it's all about illegitimate uses. Mm-hmm. That's Oedipus is part and parcel with the Ill- illegitimate uses of the synthesis. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Therefore, the illegitimate conceptualization of the unconscious. That's that's actually a great example of that idea of these phyla because Freud is kind of using this mythological literary machine, right? Yes. To apply to the synthesizing that with the psychoanalytic machine. Okay. Oh, that's cool. You know, it's. um, I feel like I got something there. So that feels. That's, yeah. That's, (laughs) I think that's, that's part of their attack against mythologizing the unconscious, right? Sort of putting Oedipus there so as to find it. Because they want to say psychoanalysis didn't invent Oedipus, right? Interesting. It discovered it to a certain extent. That's what Freud wants to basically say. I mean, is that- you could say Freud discovers it in his own self-analysis, which in and of itself is kind of, for the first time he notices, hey, that looks like Oedipus, right? That's what they say in, earlier in the book, you know, because it's that's kind of questionable because it, it is about this interesting narcissism, but also self-fulfilling and therefore self-justifying way in which psychoanalysis wavers between these possibilities of uh, revolutionary investments, but seems to either with Freud or with Lacan, but, you know, as they say, more so around him, around them, take on these more reactionary ways of confirming the self-evidence of of Oedipus as a rite of passage of all humans, right? For all time in all times. Yes. That's what they want. That universalism they want. That's, this is Guattari's disagreement with universals in general, as we've discussed many times. You must resolve Oedipus, which they reference in the text. I was thinking about though, this sort of, this idea of kind of implanting Oedipus to be found reminded me a little bit of the 
you know, I've talked about Memento so much on the podcast, but it re- really kind of, you remember how like in Memento, he's in Memento, he's removing bits and pieces of his file. So it's, it's kind of the opposite effect, but at the same time though, he is adding new tattoos, etc. right. To sort of, to find the, he's adding his own Oedipus to find, right. Every, t- you know what I mean? He's kind of tricking himself into finding Oedipus in the sense of this killer, you know what I mean? It's this sort of circular, like the rap man, right? He creates this unconscious puzzle that he cannot solve, right? Because the, in, I don't know, there's a sort of enjoyment in that repetition of right. frustration, but that's getting into the sort of Lacanian mode of... Well, analysis. it's already Freudian, right? Because beyond the pleasure principle, you yeah. know, it, that there's, it's the enjoyment and the repetition that Freud starts to question and has to metaphysically kind of ensconce in the death drive and also in his vague way of of elaborating it let's say almost too precise and too ambiguous at the same time (laughs) i mean it's you know um, the double bind right there right yeah i mean it's 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 it's, it's, would probably say something like that but also oedipus is too abstract and not abstract enough um That's part of his way of once you diagram Oedipus, which is what we're kind of going into today, as in, in a Guattarian manner, you start to see not only like what goes into causing it, and we'll get more and more into the cause. There is Oedipus at last. We'll get that in chapter three, but there's also the effects. The effects of Oedipus taken as the model, right? Oedipus psychoanalysis finds it and reinforces it. This is their problem with how it's running. It's not that the analytic machine is, is in itself reactionary or has reactionary investments, right? I mean, we, this is why they also cite Jean Ory, who, whom uh, Bautry was working with, you know, the institutional analysis that we've talked about, right. injecting social institutions with, with uh, death drive. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So with the three syntheses and the illegitimate uses of them and their undertaking of a transcendental critique, right? I, I like to call this these sections, as I tweeted earlier, uh, the critique of clinical reason. And it's, it's the fact that what they are concerned with are what they call paralogisms, right? And in terms of the, in terms of Greek, it's literally, you know, talking around, it's re- literally this, this falsification sophistry in terms of the, the words para and logos, right? It's, it's this manner of using formulations as a way to kind of box things in that seems logical, right? But is, is in fact illegitimate, as they say, from, from the imminent perspective, right? And I think that that's, that's the thing that they are, because they say that the illegitimate uses aren't, aren't products of the unconscious. I think this is a big, thing that they say oh, that, interesting that and and therefore you that seems say, counterintuitive i think just as a as a sort of novice or right i mean i think that their argument would be the machinic unconscious or the transcendental unconscious in fact doesn't this is why they've been saying calling it an atheist orphan unconscious it doesn't recognize oedipus oedipus is something that is a product of a certain regime of design production but also a certain kind of course we've taken in in history which is why they say that, like, I know they're quoting Andre Green, but he's talking about how Oedipus and castration casts all of history in a new light, recasts it. And this is what they are, 
they're not denying that, but they are saying that that's a, that's just a part of the legacy of these illegitimate uses. So with with the connective, it's the they're juxtaposing the Oedipal illegitimate uses of the connective synthesis as uh, specific and global. And really, there's two main takeaways, and I know we want to talk about these, but the first one is basically this question of global persons. I think that I've always found this notion so important for understanding, especially when they get into incest prohibition, right? How in a certain sense, we sort of, and this is, I mean, this is why they have to mobilize Proust in the same breath, right? Because it is, it's this question of the prohibition of incest displacing this desire, but insofar as it displaces desire, it sort of distorts it. This is why, you know, their critique is basically, oh, well, I wanted to fuck my mom and kill my dad. Well, the, that's, that's just a, a distorted mirror image as a consequence of the restrictive, or sorry, the, it's the specific and global, you know, you create the, the mother and the father and the, my dear little ego out of these illegitimate uses of the synthesis of production. And they are a product of the prohibition, right? The product of don't kill your father, don't fuck your mother. Or we could say identify with your father in this sort of conflict or identify with your mother and therefore fall into the undifferentiated of homosexuality, be excluded right from society. They want to juxtapose that with the non-specific yeah, the non-specific and the partial. So it's this battle between the partial objects and their sort of preponderance over the complete object, the detached phallus that rules over the chains of signifiers. And, um, and that is, I think, where they, they are attacking even the role of signifiers and the distribution of, of lack through castration which we've also talked about with, with Lacan often in the, in the past few episodes. Do you think this is a good passage to read from page 70? Page or? 70. Yeah. Let's yeah. See. This one here. Well, I have uh, page, I have the number of page 70 circled, so I bet it's going to be a fucking banger. The opposition here is between two uses of the connective syntheses, a global and specific use and a partial and non-specific use. In the first, desire at the same time receives a fixed subject, an ego specified according to a given sex, and complete objects defined as global persons. The complexity and the foundations of such an operation appear more distinctly if we consider the mutual reactions between the different syntheses of the unconscious following a given use. It is first of all the synthesis of recording that in effect situates on its surface of inscription within the conditions of Oedipus a definable and differentiable ego in relation to parental images serving as coordinates, mother-father. There we have a triangulation that implies in its essence a constituent prohibition and the conditions, the differentiation between persons, prohibition of incest with the mother, prohibition against taking the father's place. But a, sor a strange sort of reasoning leads one to conclude that since it is forbidden, that very thing was desired. In reality, global persons, even the very form of persons, do not exist prior to the prohibitions that weigh on them and constitute them any more than they exist prior to the triangulation into which they enter. Desire receives its first complete objects 
and has forbidden them at one at the same time. And I guess that's kind of the double bind part of it. Therefore, it is indeed the same Oedipal operation that lays the foundations for possibility of its own resolution by way of a differentiation of persons in conformity with the prohibition as well as the possibility for its own failure or stagnation by following into undifferentiated as the reverse side of differentiation created by the prohibitions, incest by identification with the father, homosexuality by identification with the mother, the personal material transgression does not exist prior to the prohibition any more than does the former persons. And we can follow up with this, this next text. I'll see what you have to say, if anything, about that section. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, it's this interesting thing because they will also say when they're reading Proust that on the one side you have a, you have a purely molar statistical side where we are molarly heterosexual. And then we are out of those series, out of that nebulae, as they say, you have a personal homosexuality, whereas the real molecular bubbling forth is a transsexuality. And I think that that for them is a way of seeing the Oedipal conflict from beneath instead of from above, because, you know, what is informing Oedipus for us to take, go through castration and go through this question of either vying with the father or, or, or succeeding in quelling our desire to take the father's place to be the, the mother's uh, love object, to give the mother a baby as we've covered, you know, that's how Freud reads it, that we have to go through that. And at the same time, though, I mean, Freud's understanding of bisexuality is we, we are also, there's also this negative side, this undercurrent where we are wanting to be the father's loved object, right? We're wanting to take the place of the mother to a certain extent so we can give the father a baby. Yeah, um, a la Schreber, know, right? Right, a la Schreber, a la Wolfman. For... Well, really, you see Freud doing this Oedipal thing with all of those cases, right? Yes. Because I think that's the common thread, really, between Wolfman, Ratman, and Schreber, right, is the Freud's diagnosis of the homosexual desire for the father, if I remember yeah, correctly. And at least Schreber yeah. and Ratman. I mean, I, I think that for Freud, the Oedipal conflict also really crystallizes what's going on in the transference between the patient and the doctor, right? His way of treating Ratman and Wolfman, his weapon was to navigate the waters of transference, be able to take on elements of the sort of good father to work through the double binds that oh, yeah. these... Okay, and so we'll get to double bind in a second. Is that the transference element too? The implementation of transference there? In well, terms I, I of think, becoming the good father? At Freud becoming the good father? Yeah, I mean, I do think to, that that's... That, that him taking the father position is, is a way to, you know, create these mirrors for their, or to stand in, in a sort of a, a controlled manner for the father so that some of these things can be worked through again, mm -hmm. right? Some of these, these, uh, and this is why he thinks Oedipus is the crystal. It's, it crystallizes just social development, uh, human development, individual ontogenetic development. And I think that he's trying to, use, I mean, I think this, it comes to crown and he looks back and says, oh, this is what I was doing the whole time. I was, and he's not unaware that he's playing father at times, right? I mean, right. Like with, with Ratman who, yeah. are, 
yeah, I mean, it was, it was Ratman, you know, sees this, sees Freud's daughter and thinks that Freud is almost like using her as bait, right? Yeah. He wants, because Ratman's, he's got that megal megalomania that he thinks Freud wants him as, as the son. I mean, Freud is very aware that his, they'll say, they'll say later about psychoanalysis, not inventing Oedipus, that patients come, want, already Oedipalized, wanting more Oedipus, can't get enough of it. And, you know, for the Ratman and Wolfman, that's, that's a tool that he wields like a club. Mm -hmm. And I think that he does the same thing to Schreiber in his own reading. I mean, they, they fault him for leaving out all the racial delirium and kind of whitewashing it. He himself forces Schreiber through the, into the bind of Fleshig being standing in for the father or God, which he unifies because Schreiber already divides it, but God being the father, right? Freud himself is injecting that Oedipal transference into the text or into his text in order to read Schraber's text through that lens. It's like, if he would have been my patient, we would have had some father figures to work through, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what he seems to be, gotcha. seems to be doing. I was going to go back to the question of global persons because one of the critiques that Deleuze and Guattari are making is against a certain sort of familialism. You know, and we just talked about how Freud was using one of the vortices to put himself at, right? The father point. And then yeah. obviously the patient's playing out the, the child, the role of the child. And one could say the discourse between them could be some sort of weird mother or the mother's just absent. In any case, what they are attacking is familialism. Yeah. They are and they, this is why they take, not to put on your name, they take issue with Cooper and, <laughs> And, and, and say Lang had a, a little bit better, but he too, in anti-psychiatry, seems to use familialism as a bedrock, right? Mommy, daddy, me, stuff that we've, we've already heard. And they, when they, they talk about global persons as sort of coming with the prohibitions, right? It's not until the prohibition that we have father, daddy, or daddy, mommy, me. They want to say that this is part and parcel to Oedipus is part and parcel with this transmission, one could say of itself, but also of family units in so far as we understand them in sort of European fashion. Right. The nuclear family. Yeah. Right. That's why, you know, I have to keep my sister for another man, but take my wife from another father. Right. This, this question of, um, Interesting. You know, there's the because this is why they say incest has two prohibitions. It's the negative one, not to take the mother, right? Because she's already occupying her own triangle. You fuck up the triangles if you if you take the mother. So you have the prohibition of the mother, which imposes differentiation, which means you're forming your you're starting to butt off into your own triangle, and then the positive prohibition against taking the sister, right? Because you need to exchange her with another family in order to complete their little fucking triangles. So this only functions under the regime of global persons. And, you know, later they'll look at Levi Strau and talk about how he goes into this question in depth. And one of the things that is assumed or was assumed that incest is based on gener generational differences, sort of an ageist, Ooh, an ageist oh, differentiation. Huh. And Levi Strau, Levi Strau shows how that's not at all the case. That's fascinating. That that's, it's not about 
keeping one generation from marrying above or, or below, you know, it is much more a logic of the collectivity and the collective's engagement with, with an outside, which we'll, again, we'll get into, but I love talking about Gilgamesh in sense of anti-Oedipus because the tale starts with the townspeople of Uruk, particularly the men, they are pissed. They are pissed that Gilgamesh is fucking. Primanocta, he, right? he takes he takes on Primanocta. He's fucking all their wives, and because he's two thirds god, of course, all their firstborn are going to be his. So, any case, well, I'll, I'll I'll come back to this when we get to chapter three. But uh, so yeah, I mean, the question of the the illegitimate connective synthesis, the global and specific, I think for them is part and parcel of the familialism, and this is why they quote Foucault later, right, saying that. Freud continues the, the psychiatric movement, you know, before him and just wants to sort of merge the clinic or uh, the asylum w- inside this familial structure, complete that move. Uh, he sees a, Foucault sees this continuity. And so I was thinking when we think about, you know, everybody's supposed to, and you complete your own little. Erecting the new f- micro phallus of psychoanalysis. Right. And you, you, and you create your, you complete your, your triangle by taking on a wife from another father, but then yes. you transmit the new triangle to your child. Right. And this is why I was Oedipus the, is in the father we've said too. Right? right. This is why the illegitimate use is three plus one. The structure is three plus one. You need the plus <laughs> one to which, which is the transcendent foundation that, for erecting new triangles. And so, so that would could, be, would that be castration? I think castration isn't. It's not a transcendent it's, it's, thing, is it? Well, how does well yeah, with hanging the phallus over the signifying change. Yeah, I mean that they they see that as transcendent, but it's. Um, I mean, with castration, here we're talking about lack. I think with castration, they would want to talk about law. The three the three paralogisms they're fighting against, or the three boogeymen, um, which kind of says a lot about. Deleuze's affirmationism is lack, law, and signifier. Those are the three things that that will be part and parcel with each of the illegitimate usage. And so with castration, yeah, it is about submission to law, right? Social repression sort of in general, and but it's connected with the synthesis of connection, which is distributing lack, gotcha. right? So, so castration isn't just one of the syntheses. Right. Okay. Um, and is, you know, I mean, I think that, I think that with, I think that the way I think about the, the familialism in the transmission of triangles is like a virus, right? The, the three plus one, the three angles, three sides of the triangle, the three points, but the plus one is the, is the sort of, yeah, I mean, I guess that that would be the, the next step is by going through castration and taking on the the sort of positive role of heterosexual heteronormative copulation and procreation right i think that by falling under the spell that the pleasure principle attaches to the sexual act and makes parents of us you know there's something about that that would be the the role of castration and so i i think of oedipus kind of like as a virus right or the or the familial triangulation that Oedipus entails and is part and parcel with. It's, it is about this transmitting a virus. You know, it's the, they say, I take a woman other than my sister in order to constitute the differentiated base of a new triangle whose inverted vertex will be my child, which is called surmounting, overcoming Oedipus. 
but reproducing it as well, transmitting it rather than dying all alone, incestuous, homosexual, and a zombie. I mean, it is it is a kind of viral transmission, you know, and what this is, is also ways of thinking of child child as a parasite, but but not quite because animals can even though they it's it's a kind of symbiotic parasite, right? Because the the mother actually gets benefits. It's certain animals, certain mammals get even though they gain weight, they they become faster. So there's some kind of comp- compensation going on where nature's trying to protect its right. Uh, yeah, there's some type of surplus. Something and I, and I think the Oedipus is trying something to, is produced. There, we could talk about it in terms of Baudrillard, where it is about this code, this Oedipal code, this encoding, injecting the code that, that is trying the to, viral code. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's like trying a, to re- it's trying to replicate <laughs> itself. It's like a botnet or whatever type of kind of in, you know what I mean. And so for them though, it's it's the it's kind of the nuclear familial structure of the triangle that is the form in which Oedipus is able to transmit itself so well. You know, as we'll see, they will link Oedipus to colonization. Yeah. And so they, they kind of want to make it a Western uh, white right. man virus. Yeah. But uh, but we'll, we'll get we'll get there. We'll get there when we get to chapter three. Again, that's where a lot of fun stuff goes on. But yeah, I guess I guess that I would just end there with what they. You know, what they are, are trying to identify as the paralogium in this synthesis of production of, uh, you know, the, the connective synthesis is what they'll call it a kind of error of extrapolation. And that error is the extrapolating this, the despotic signifier, right? The, the phallic signifier to rule over the distribution of lack and thereby to kind of make or to complete, if you will, the well-defined boundaries of individual uh, identities, specifically in terms of parents and, and, and child, the familial sort of bind that will lead us to understanding the next synthesis disjunction. What I think is kind of interesting here is just to think about the, I guess the way that the family has evolved and along with capitalism and modernity because of the, Right, the transition from agrarian society to industrial. The families were typically larger during the agricultural. And I mean, this even goes back, I mean, even within the 20th century, right? Early 20th century. Larger families, especially in agricultural. I mean, my grandmother had like eight, nine siblings. My wife's grandfather had, you know, tons. I'm sure most people can can say that so we're not that far removed from it right yeah exactly which is i think kind of interesting for going back to freud's time you know that's very much still within the western society this is very much still a the nuclear family as we kind of see it i think develops a little bit later once industrial post-world war ii yeah or even right around world war ii where industrialization is taking shape and really like Suburbanization. So it's like severing off that the extended family, like it's breaking that up into a different social formation. So I just wondered what relevance that has, especially in the way that they kind of map out how Oedipus forms. It's always the three plus one, at least for Freud or their like critique of Freud. So there has to be like the grandfather involved or right? Are the grand well when there's when, a grandparent implicated in as part of that, or am I just Yes, that's uh, specifically, I think the simplest 
you know, because in a certain sense, psychoanalysis and in their polemical argument is about neuroticizing and normalizing, and therefore the simplest structure is three plus one. But when they see uh, certain Lacanians and Freudians wanting to deal with psychosis, they see that, and I, and I asked you this, but I think it's true. I believe it's in the Wolfman's Magic Word where Abraham and Turok basically say that they would learn so much more about the Wolfman if they knew not only about his grandparents, but about his great grandparents. So there's something for them about psychoanalysis thinking, well, if it's psychosis, that's grandma or grandpa, mm-hmm. right? And how then the triangulations are, you're, you're merely extending the trauma of the triangulation back further mm-hmm. in order to try to uh, yeah. characterize what the psychotic brings that's new and different from the, from the neurotic. It's more that and less than like trying to almost get to the sort of lost origin that Baudrillard is kind of gesturing in symbolic exchange and death. There is something similar to that about about a certain nostalgia where it's like if that it's as though individual trauma, if we just go back far enough in the genealogy, mm-hmm. and I think they showed that the schizo schizophrenic taken as a model is not or just schizoanalysis is not trying to find this lost origin as though we could, if we had a large enough vision and we just traced the triangles back far enough and had the, had all that knowledge, then we would find somewhere the kernel of trauma that gets transmitted. And they're like, no dummy, the, the triangles are actually already open. And this is why they say it's four plus N the idea of a closed macrocosm and microcosm, which is when they turned to Bergson. Right. Bergson exploded this, this kind of um, truism by, show, by arguing for their openness. Mm-hmm. And I think that they do the same thing with Oedipus and with the familialism that the child's unconscious is already taking in, you know, and seeing social production infecting the family on all sides. And it's, and it's, it's overflowing. So to kind of try to conceptually close the unconscious in on itself in a triangle, double binding it, one could say, right? Right. I mean, yeah. That's exactly. where they see Oedipus as ascendant. Interesting. I was thinking too that Guattari's little triangle diagrammatic in Machinic Unconscious is a great, it's just such a rich, dense little, it kind of goes towards this whole thing, right? Thing we're working towards. I don't know if you remember that one. You remember that it has, it's the triangle, it's got the partial objects, it's got the little circular like spiral towards the center. Yeah. Are you talking about the Guattari diagram? Yes. Of the different redundancies? No, 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 no. Oh, his. It's not that one. He's mocking Lacan. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I don't know if I can find it. The triangle is, the triangle is imaginary symbolic real, right? And, and basically, um, yeah. Those are the three vortices. It's like binary, binary castrated phallus, except yeah. I can't remember the rest. No, it's fine. It's fine. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's it's definitely something what we can come back to. Um, but you're right. You know that that um, that Squatchery's kind of parody of RSI of real symbolic imaginary, and they and they they you know carry on their attack on these terms in here as well. But you know, we keep talking about the double bind, and I guess one of the ways I try to understand the double bind because you know for Bateson, he sees it as perhaps too strongly the cause of schizophrenia. And I think that what 
Deleuze and Guattari are saying like, no, double bind is, that's how Oedipus works. So if you, if you want to consider a, an isolated schizophrenic who's been turned into a sort of clinical entity, then yeah, you could, you could kind of agree that the double bind produces, produces the deadlock that schizophrenics as a, not schizophrenic as a process, right? Which they will constantly differentiate. But you know, the way I, one of the ways I try to understand the double bind is you may know, you may have known friends like this. I had, I had so many friends growing up who, who were well off, sometimes upper middle class, middle class parents either hate each other or were divorced. And a lot of times it would be single children and they would sometimes be, have to spend one week with one parent and one with the other. And so much of the way the child is used as a weapon in that struggle between the mother and the father was as a pawn sort of was, was mother said, you can't, you know, you can't eat candy, you know, or you can't go, you you go to bed at a strict time. Like don't listen to her, you know, we'll do it this way. I mean, that, that, that kind of way of, of fighting is, is a very simple and it's not the whole of, of the double bind, but it's a very good example. I mean, they, Double binds also come from one and the same parent, you know, as they give the example of the, the father who gives a says, says you can you can do whatever you want, but it's already implied you'll be punished if you don't do what you know they want or what they've already told you to do. I mean, this is the same double bind the rat man finds himself in with respect to his father. And we see that the, the, the Freudian Lacanian way of looking at psychosis is going back a generation is that we hear the story. Freud wants to include the story of Ratman's father having a similar prohibition against marrying a certain woman and the father. And so Ratman's father just reproduces the trauma that and the double bind that he right, yeah, that was he put in. Oh, interesting. And this is why they, they too say that when they talk about- Do unto others what has been done unto me? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> a good way to put it. They they talk about the rat man, and I know that they say it later, but the rat man, they say, because they're discussing uh, childhood sexuality, they say it didn't take the rat man to become an adult for him already to enter into this differentiation of the, the rich woman and the uh and the servant girl right and to fetishize them and have weird phobias of prostitutes etc right so like he's already as a child primed and this is why they they question the latency period and how that's this uber explanatory concept but i am getting ahead of myself that that's just one form of the double bind that i think as we see divorce becoming more and more popular at least in america you'll see it not just happening with the one parent, but kind of, as I said, the there's a tug of war going on right between mother and father. And it's this question of either which I'm going to identify with, right, in terms of what we already talked about, right, or in the sense of which one is supposed to have priority or knowing that potentially doing what one parent wants while you're with that parent, you might be punished when you go back to the other parent. So having this these conflicts of having these kind of contradictions, you know, Bateson works through how a lot of this is both conceptual and linguistic, how the schizo will turn to metaphor in order to navigate these, uh, these double binds precisely because the literal is closed off, you know, and I think that, I think that that's why they also say in terms of Proust's, 
work, but also just in general, they want to say that there's no, there are no contradictions. There are degrees of humor, right? And so, you know, this is why in Bateson's essay on the double bind, he turns to jokes as one source of navigating the double bind. But it can yeah. you elaborate on that? I think I'm it's, it, that. I mean, it, to a certain extent, it's it's like the joke sets up expectations of a certain logic of how it runs mm-hmm. and then upsets that logic. OK, gotcha. right? okay I right, mean, right. it's very okay. similar to how Freud talks about the joke lifting repression. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of how. It. Yeah, because I think this is very much so like, of course, I love one of my favorite forms of humor is the non sequitur but it's the even at its one of its most simplest forms is you're just taking the unexpected conjunction of of words right that produces a surprise yeah i don't know there's even at that level like there's a certain way that that exemplifies this logic this logic of walking you down a certain line of logic and then reversing that at the end and that surprise moment is where the humor is to be found or claimed it's almost this uh, extracting this surplus jouissance, in a sense, if you would uh, <laughs> allow me. I, I think you're totally right. And and so for them, one of the ways they understand double bind is how psychoanalysis is able to reinforce Oedipus and turn, again, this universal logic that this is what we all have to go through. There's a There's then kind of an internalization of Oedipus that that is projected back out and found everywhere, including in social authority. And it leads us to become docile subjects, right? It, or at least reinforces that. This is how psychic repression and social repression reinforce one another and are part and parcel. Um, you know, I think that with, I think that with, um, I mean, when they say double bind is the second paralogism of psychoanalysis, it's none other than the whole of Oedipus I'm not sure what the a good word for it is, but yeah, it is this question of, as they say, they they relate it down to the three, well, they, I think they call it familial complexes, but you have phobia where you're either parent or child, or you you have no way of knowing parent or whether you're parent or child. You have hysteria whether you are man or woman and then you have the obsessional who is who doesn't doesn't know if he's alive or dead right and they want to show especially through schraber this is where they come back to schraber when they, they come back to schraber at certain great points but they kind of show how all three of these uh disjunctions are shown to be inclusive right that it's he is your trans alive dead transparent child transsexual it's uh it's, but it's this question about not always being at the same time, but but it being this non-decomposable distance that you traverse, right? Schreber himself, as they say, he he gives birth to humanity. He re, he gives birth to humanity and can finally die, right? Like the, this this whole this question of the the schizo being able to sort of or the inclusive side of the junction. They they what, what do they call it? It's positive inclusive disjunction this question of of being of gliding along the traversing the what seem to be contraries but no longer are except in the illegitimate use right where we have to we have to sort of take a stand on 
being man or woman, being parent, child, being dead or alive, right? We have, those are <laughs> yeah. somehow exclusive. I think for Schraber and we see with delirium that that is in no way the case. Where do you, uh, where do you think we should go from here? I did have, um, I think getting into the bisexuality and the transsexuality or the transsexuality rather was kind of interesting. I know we wanted to talk about that. You did mention Schraber too. There's a very interesting quote about him um, being like a spore case that was inflated. Yes. Because I think we've done... Releasing... Kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've talked a bit about recording. We've talked about the some of the syntheses. We've talked about the formation, the, the three plus one, the four plus N. We haven't talked about kind of the racial elements, the Hitler stuff, well, that's, the Nazis, et cetera. I mean, yeah, we, we should spend the rest of our time on the conjunctive synthesis of consummation consumption. Okay. That, that's the longest section in, in this, in these three. And um, they do come back to Schreber. I see on, it's on page 85. The first things to be distributed on the body without organs are races, cultures, and their gods. The fact has often been overlooked that the schizo indeed participates in history. He hallucinates and raves universal history and proliferates the races. All delirium is racial, which does not necessarily mean racist. Now, we, when we, we constantly have to come back to Schreber throughout the book, uh, especially in these early parts. But, yeah. you know, the... The point that they are making is how much Freud, as I said, whitewashes all of this racial delirium of Schreber. And I think that for Deleuze and Guattari, there's a sense in which Schreber initially, insofar as he is investing the Germans as the chosen people, the Germans, the preferred elementary language of God as a kind of proto-German, and this question of the Aryans and their future, I think that his delirium does start off racist in the segregational usage, the, um, the segregative sort of transcendent usage. And yet they show that he kind of breaks through the white wall. He begins to rave that he's a Mongol prince, right? He breaks through the Aryan uh, race, uh, race, racist use, and at least is, if not totally like free of all racism, is at least sort of uh, raving in a way that is uh, that is not, and it's not about being the the chosen people. I think that this is one of the things that I love about this section is this notion that. Um, Oedipus depends on the nationalistic, racist, um, sort of we are the chosen uh, people feeling and not yeah. the other way around. It doesn't I, produce it. It's, it's an effect of it. Hmm. I wonder, too, I think private property comes into play here with these familial triangles because, right, it's all about ensuring that your sort of lineage or whatever is um, preserved, I guess. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like only only in the context of a private of where private property exists does it make sense for there to even be like only within that framework does the idea of the nuclear family even have any kind of does it make sense? Without that, what's the point of a surname? You know what I mean? Well, it's like the the imposition of the 
family on the shit, the fucking assemblages of enunciation or the desiring machines or yeah, it's the creation. it's closing it's closing them off. Yes, from yeah, yeah, from the connective synthesis. Yeah, you create these global persons, you create these stable identities and exclusive entities, and then you found them upon this, as you said, this question of transmitting my name. It's a form of narcissism that we've yes, talked about. And, right. you know, it's this question of, and it's the same with Gilgamesh too, right? He wants to make remake Yurik in his own image. It is a kind of fascist way of doing things. And and yeah, I think that that's, that's the question. It's the 13 words, right? About securing the future for the chosen race, for my, for my, which happens to be my race, right? Which happens to be the one that I belong to. And this is where they talk about the segregative use of the third synthesis, the synthesis of consumption, which, you know, as we saw for them, the synthesis of uh, conjunction, right? The the conjunctive synthesis of consumption, I'll get it right, uh, <laughs> is about, it's the movement of what they call voluptus, right? Voluptus, voluptuousness, the enjoyment that passes along to me, my little share. That's the third synthesis. That's my little little bit of, of enjoyment that I as a subject get. And I think that for them, this is a question, a fundamental questioning of the like self-identity of the ego and the sort of self-identification too with any sort of, you know, again, this question of, of the chosen race, the chosen people, the, the ones sort of ordained to take on the, the future. I mean, Schraber himself has this kind of boiling in him too when he wants to recreate humanity or when he feels he's becoming woman to procreate with God, to recreate humanity. There is a sense of that, that it is about sort of a, narcissistically reproducing myself and wanting the best for those like me. And this is the way that it is about belonging. It is about belonging to a, a closed group. And we talked about with Todd McGowan, you know, I mentioned about one of the things I found fascinating in Badu's ethics is this question that there's no full event. There's no event that's for only some subjects that would, that's the fascist conceptualization of certain events that are, you know, that, that there is like world destiny inscribed, uh, inscribing my people, my, those like me, the events just for me, not for you. Right. And that type of segregation they see as the third paralogism, this third transcendent use of the synthesis. I think this quote from page 86 kind of goes to this too, because it, and kind of the way that it applies this to scientific I don't know, discoveries, but labels, perhaps. It is a question of something quite different, identifying races, cultures, and gods with the fields of intensity on the body without organs, identifying personages with states that fill these fields and with effects that fulgurate within and traverse these fields. Whence the role of names with a magic all their own, there is no ego that identifies with races, peoples, and persons in a theater of representation, but proper names that identify races, peoples, and persons with regions thresholds or effects in a production of intensive quantities. The theory of proper names should not be conceived of in terms of representation. It refers instead to the class of effects, effects that are not a mere dependence on causes, but the occupation of a domain and the operation of a system of signs. This can clearly be seen in physics where proper names designate such effects within fields of potentials. 
the Joule effect, the Seebeck effect, the Kelvin effect. History is like physics, a Joan of Arc effect, a Heliogabalus effect, all the names of history and not the name of the father. I especially find this little bit about how the the role of names and them having a magic all their own being pretty interesting little phrase. Yeah, the role of proper names. Which, which goes to my argumentation or point about surnames and how that only has resonance within a system of private property of exclusivity. Yes. Of exclusivity to, I guess, the, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. To, what that exclusivity is towards. Um, well, what I mean, what, it's 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 also the it's the ego in its own, right? I mean, you would know better than this, but Sterner. <laughs> I mean, it's this question. I think that for for Deleuze and Guattari in this schizophrenizing way, they call into question the proprietariness and the possessiveness of the of the self and its self identity, its stability. You know, this question of its openness. Or of its fundamentally split nature. Yeah. You know, this swarming with larvae is Deleuze will sometimes yeah. talk about the eye. Really, honestly, for for Sterner, something like Oedipus would be a, considered a spook, especially in the way that Deleuze and Guattari's criticism, their sort of line of critique falls within that same argumentation. It's something that's imposed externally. It's not transcendental property. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about. But maybe I misunderstood your Sternerian. No, no, no. I, I'm just thinking about how, um, with the the conjunctive synthesis, you know, I I find it fascinating thinking about the Odyssey and Odysseus's journey mm -hmm. to get back home, his 20 year journey after, you know, because obviously the Iliad is this magnificent story about the the destruction of of a certain culture, right? And so it is, it, it begins with the fundamental conflict of races, of cultures and, and gods, right? I mean, it is, it is literally swarming with gods. And in Odysseus, you know, he's worried about the, what constitutes, what constitutes genuine, authoritative, authentic, Ithacan rulership, right? Which is, the line of Odysseus, but somehow he's cursed with only having one child. I mean, even if he could get back, let's just say Penelope probably couldn't have another child. But in any case, you know, he's got what he's already got the one child. That child is is why the drama hinges on Telemachus, who is under threat by the suitors who, who want to kill him because he's kind of in league with his mother to to bide for time. And the suitors are the sort of the barbarians on the on the at the at the gates right we're trying to trying to destroy the the sovereignty of Odysseus and Odysseus himself has to lose his proper name in order to get back home it's his sin of hubris in shouting out his uh his name that gets him punished right that gets him punished for his misdeeds so he has to lose his name and come back in disguise only to obviously regain it at the end because it's kind of, it's supposedly got a happy ending if we think about it from the point of view of Odysseus and his family and the, and the Greeks, instead of from the point of view of the Trojans or the, or the suitors who are slaughtered at the end. I think of Odysseus as exemplifying some of the stuff about there's an inherent racialism, but the Greek conflict with Troy isn't really animated by racism. Right. I mean, they are described in fairly glowing terms. And we see that Agamemnon's really thinking about plunder. 
and prestige that goes along with that, you know, and it's, and it's only through goading Menelaus, his brother, the King of the Spartans into, into, he needs him, but he, he goes him into it with uh, Helen of Troy, you know, betraying him. So the whole, it's got an edible kernel to it too, to a certain right. extent, right? You know, the cuckoldry and, and whatnot. Yes. But, it's, but it's not about this question of we, we are the superior race, we will de- defeat the Trojans. I mean, they, they figure out pretty quickly that they perhaps aren't superior, right? I mean, it's Odysseus's uh, magnificent idea, his craftiness with the, with the Trojan horse that, that gets the victory. This kind of, there's this kind of betraying a certain unwritten rule of, of like honorable warfare. Uh, Virgil will get into this too when he wants to say the Romans are honorable and they send their legions out and they face you and you know you're facing the Romans, whereas the Greeks, they're they're crafty little fucks. Yeah. They do guerrilla warfare and they, you know, yeah. like you know what's funny is there's a quote in um the movie The Rock from <laughs> from Nicholas Cage's character is like I I don't trust the Greeks even when they come bearing gifts or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so they're the um you know they're the they're the liars and. You could say that that's also why there's a sense in which they're all punished. Everything goes wrong for everybody that goes back. Odysseus is the one after much suffering because he is the worldly guy. He gets to experience all the inexperienceable. He gets to experience the limits of human um, participation in, in the extraordinary. But everybody else has a bad time coming home. Right, Agamemnon's stabbed. He's been cuckolded, ironically. Menelaus got Helen back, but they can't. He's cursed. They can't have a child. Right, so his lineage dies. Everybody gets fucked over. So it's not like the Greeks are the superior race. They are actually they are punished very, very strongly for this. And I think there's something to read into that. The fact that Odysseus is somehow in the end the one lucky one huh. is. It's almost ironic. As if, <laughs> it's ironic to a certain extent. It's almost as if Oedipus is the Trojan horse, right? We're talking about Baudrillard as far as code being injected, the viral nature of that. Right. It's it's hard to say, right? Because I think that for Deleuze Guattari, we'll see it is a way of conceiving of social relations. It's a way of conceiving of of modern alienation into familial groups, right? It's a way of it's the sort of natural progression of patriarchy. As we saw them quote Kant, who turns to Roman law to, to define marriage as the ownership of another person's genitals. Um, it's that kind of progression of Western thinking that leads to the, well, I mean, you know, you see, you see in, in ancient cultures, or quote unquote primitive cultures, how children are raised in common. There are it takes the village. Yeah, Pierre Plaster <laughs> talks about how in um, I think it's the Giaki or it might be the Guarani. One of the tribes he's looking at there is a there's like a three to one or two to one male to female ratio. So how do they naturally solve this by by the the woman being able to take on multiple husbands? And the husbands begrudgingly accept this because that keeps the sort of social harmony uh, in equilibrium. You know what's interesting about that, I think, is the rise of polyamory and how cyclical that is, right? Because I think right around the 
term, or at least, you know, apocryphally, perhaps I should put this in quotes or denote this is that in the 70s is when the kind of whole swinging thing became sort of a deal. And I don't think that's by accident in terms of the, the economic, the socioeconomics going up the time with the advent of the neoliberal period. And now you see the same thing, I think, over the last three or four years, five years, perhaps, this is coming back. It's pretty polyamory is definitely on the rise in terms of the popular imagination and, and so forth. You see this very a lot more like having been on dating apps over the years. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, around 2014, 15, hardly you never saw that. Now it's like, you know, 30% of people are like, oh yeah, I'm polyamorous, blah, 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 blah on their profiles and such. Which I don't think is is a coincidence There's something to it. I mean, we could also say that the decrease in home ownership you know, leads to smaller or, or larger groups of people who may or may not be right. Yeah, married, that's you know, living together. So <laughs> do you want to say a few other things before we, uh, we wrap up? I mean, there was a couple of really, I thought, very interesting bits about Schraber. Another interesting part is the, we didn't talk about anything about the egg and the schizo and their relationship. I didn't want to delve into that just into that? yet, but, okay, but, gotcha. but I mean, I guess, do you mean to read the, it's the top of 84. It's the beginning of that fifth section. They say in the third synthesis, the conjunctive synthesis of consumption, we have seen how the body without organs was in fact an egg crisscrossed with axes, banded with zones, localized with areas and fields measured off by gradients, traversed by potentials marked by thresholds. In this sense, we believe in, bio, in a biochemistry of schizophrenia in conjunction with the biochemistry of drugs that will be progressively more capable of determining the nature of this egg and the distribution of field gradient threshold. You mentioned a little bit with the proper name stuff about, and, and with the, the way that the first thing to be distributed on the body with organs are races, peoples, you know, it's, it's, there, it's a question of these different regions of intensity. Mm -hmm for the unconscious, I think for them. And, and I guess that what, you know, when, when they talk about the egg in a thousand plateaus, when they come back to it, how to, how does one make oneself a body without organs? They're basically talking about, and they're following uh, Ruye who, who, who discusses this, but I'm sure Deleuze is picking a little bit from Simon Don, who doesn't himself talk about the egg, but you can apply it just as much as theories of individuation, where they talk about how the egg undergoes these torsions and twistings and foldings that no individuated being could undertake without tearing itself apart. The libido band overheating. Right. And so, and so I think that that's what I would say about it's in the segregative use, the illegitimate use of the third synthesis of the conjunctive synthesis. It is this question of focusing on, the already individuated ego that mm -hmm. somehow is like Kant's subject. It's the self same eye that attaches to every thought representation, yeah. every cognition. And I think that for Deleuze and for Deleuze and Guattari and post-structuralism and blah, 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 blah. It's this question of the ego that is constantly in this realm of becoming, in this becoming mad, one could say, uh, this mad becoming. And it's not stable it's metastable and you know it's this question of i think for the losing guattari they want to sh they want to say that 
what one of the stereotypes I think they would fight against would be this, this stereotype of you're progressive when you're young and then you become more conservative as you get older. You know, I think that that kind of stereotype is a question of the natural as a biological image, biological metaphor of how animals, beings, living beings age. Right. And as they age, they lose more and more of the potential energy for for individuation. And that's Mm -hmm. just a natural function. But I think that for them, that is a separate question. That's a that's a question that's separate from the legitimate uses of the synthesis design production, you know, and so I guess, yeah, that, that would be part of where, where, where I would go about, about the egg, because we're going to hear, we'll, we'll hear more about it, but they, gotcha. but I think that main thing about the fact that it can undergo these transformations that no individuated being can, can yeah. perform. I think that that's why, that's one of the reasons why body of the organs has to be understood in that sense of these intensive regions, these non-decomposable uh, multiplicities that can't change dimension without you can't like uh take parts away or add parts without changing their dimensions and and, you know i mean it's it's also a way it's a way of thinking about well i was going to talk about spinoza but you know i because i do think that he's getting some of this egg stuff from yeah yeah (laughs) kind of like the it has a certain monistic yeah it has a certain certain monistic element right because of the infinite potential Right. And I think also part of that is the phrase you always bring up the polymorphous perversity, right? Yes. Of the, yes. End. It's like the primordial. I mean, you could even think of this as some type of a singularity, like in terms of the universe, right? There's infinite potential in that singularity. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, Freud hits it on the head when he talks about the polymorphous perversity of the infant, right? That it hasn't developed a consciousness yet. It has developed an unconscious. It's just different bands and different zones that, different bands of intensity of auto erotic mouth and it's it's a it's a mass yeah and and so you you know i think that that what they are trying to articulate is kind of yeah the one could say the the polymorphous perversity of well uh, sort of of our participation in desire production and and it's uh, you know i i try to think about it sometimes it's just like there is a sense in a very, a very like straightforward, commonsensical way, I'll just say, there is a sense of, of Deleuze and Guattari asking us, forcing us as readers to be, to be open-minded mm-hmm. about these things. And I mean that in a very broad sense, because there is a sense in which there's a closed-mindedness, you can call it the double bind if you want. <laughs> there's like a uh, closed-mindedness to these illegitimate uses of the unconscious that... Uh-huh somehow seem to accord with and are in harmony with the status quo with the state of things as they are with investing into these reactionary structures like like the struggle we've talked about over the funding of police right one could say right the question of blue lives matter and and all of these things this question of finding you know, this question of open-mindedness is about being self-critical, about bringing our own Oedipus to the stage of its, of its self-criticism and finding the, recognizing our fascist tendencies, recognizing our, that we have this habit, yeah, of this is my little body, I've got my little bubble around me, and I've got my little little circle of friends, I've got my ways of seeing the world, you know, and things that throw that into confusion or things that call that into question, 
we naturally have these defensive mechanisms that yes. we, we bring right. in. And some of that's, that's kind of what I mean about being open-minded yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is this question of sort of opening ourselves up to possibility uh, potentialities. Yeah. And to, and to not, I guess it's like not ignoring and repressing the, the little, the innocence of madness, right. Is, is Proust. I think McGowan quoted anti-Oedipus when he, when they quote Proust saying what bothers us is madness and its innocence. Isn't that what, isn't that what he says? Oh, this is a great quote. I want to read it. More than vice, says Proust, it is madness and its innocence that disturbs us. So I guess that that's, that's kind of the thing is that, you know, we, we are all fundamentally alienated, self-alienating personages, and we try to keep all our shit together and, and function in this <laughs> kind of fucked up uh, world order, the, you know, in, in various uh, regimes of, of locality, of lo- localness, of micro-political little regions and sometimes that can cause us to take ourselves too seriously right and cause us to like to think that the world needs more me (laughs) (laughs) when 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 really i am not self-identical to myself i think that that's 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 how they try to blow up the segregative use of this question of oh i found my group and of course my group has the right way you can see the in the history of religion the question of schisms in christianity for example it's right. always these breaks that you're never breaking away from a church and saying we don't really have it right and we're not right the the correct one but you guys can hang out with us if you want. <laughs> it's never right. like that it's always like we have the fucking truth this is the way to read the this is what the revealed word yes. is this is how you should live this is the dogma i think that a lot of that that they are calling into question here is what has sedimented as psychoanalytic dogma and Lacan too is trying to do a bulldozer, especially in the early seminars. You see him calling out his his critics, or not his critics. You see him calling out his adversaries very clearly, where he's like something. I mean, they said it. They said it uh, in the first two parts of chapter two, where, where Freud at the end of his life is sensing that something's wrong, something's gone wrong in analysis, and he can't put his finger quite on it. I think that Lacan too is trying to say that the future of analysis has to, has to take a new path. And I think that Deleuze and Guattari are trying to, in that sense, move forward in, in the spirit of Lacan, even when they criticize him and those right. around him. Yeah. Definitely want to mention this before we wrap up would be that this discussion here, and this is kind of along the same lines is that, and I forget if they characterize it as an investment, but they give the dichotomy of a, revolutionary conscious like a consciously revolutionary movement or whatever investment investment okay so it was investment so this consciously revolutionary investment can on the flip side have this fascist or reactionary unconscious investment and that the reverse can also be true however it's a lot more difficult for there to be a what did they say there's it's a lot more it's harder for there to be a consciously reactionary investment that is also that is unconsciously revolutionary i believe that's what they say i'm trying to look for it because we will get especially in chapter four we will see much more of this interest in investment dialectic work out right they they are kind of asking it's the same question in a different form how does desire come to desire its own repression how do individuals 
come to invest consciously, unconsciously in, in areas that, that conflict with their interests, with the specifically that you can say their class interests, however you want to want to call it. I mean, we, we talked about racism, but this is obviously, we, we know in politics how racism can work on the, I, I would definitely wouldn't want to call the Democratic Party, the revolutionary side and the, the Republican, the, the reactionary side. Let's not really do that. But we see how class solidarity gets fractured through the lens of pitting heteronormativity against alternate sexualities, right. yeah. pitting, pitting races against one another. Exactly. Um, that, that kind of, that's, I think, part of, and, and I think it does come, you know, this is kind of why they talk about these different syntheses and the problems they pose, the effects they have. That's kind of what leads to this, this way in which we invest in reactionary forms that totally ignore our interests and therefore we actively desire our repression or what is what, what doesn't coincide with our interests. It's page 105. They say, hence the goal of schizoanalysis, to analyze the specific nature of the libidinal investments in the economic and political spheres and thereby to show how in the subject who desires, desire can be made to desire its own repression, whence the role of the death instinct in the circuit connecting desire to the social sphere which we talked about in episode one. All this happens not in ideology, but well beneath it. An unconscious investment of a fascist or reactionary type can exist alongside a conscious re revolutionary investment. Inversely, it can happen rarely that a revolutionary investment on the level of desire coexists with a reactionary investment conforming to a conscious interest. That's the exact passage I was referring to. I kind of want to get personal a little bit in the sense of and this is very much influenced by it. Like it's going to sound corny, but or cringe. But having watched that Woodstock '99 documentary, because you know this was, you know, I was what I was in '99, the summer of '99. I was 16 years old, and so at this point in my life, this is almost. So I feel like I have a sort of almost conscious evolution of dissolving Oedipus in a sense, having been raised, you know, fundamentalist Christian. Right. There is this element of racism, misogyny, homophobia, et cetera. Like all of these things, there's a certain wholeness. There's there's a feeling of completeness or unity, this almost lost innocence, if you will, of the polymorphously perverse. But as I've gotten older, I've at least consciously tried to explode those explode those things, dissociate myself consciously from this Oedipal kind of situation. But at the same time, the danger in that is that you are there still that still doesn't address the unconscious reactionary elements that can exist even within that conscious framework trying to i guess embrace multiplicity embrace difference etc yeah it's you know with the example looks like 99 we saw that the field had changed not just from the 30 years prior to the first woodstock but even from 5 years well, prior I mean, right. even getting into, for one thing, the original Woodstock was not this idyllic thing that they made it out to be to begin with. It had no, that a, became it had a narrative. That became a story. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly. Which goes to that kind of would sort of go into Baudrillard and, and simulation and simulacra, which we'll get into in a few weeks as well. Sort of how that, right, that's a good example of how, of how simulation occurs. 
I think that one of the I think that one of the things that I like that they brought out but didn't necessarily always hit is this question of how Y2K was a kind of a mass hysteria. Yes. And it was it was formulated as a potentially real problem that right. would have effects, but there was this feeling of uh, this this quasi apocalyptic feeling of just burn it all down. Right. That, I mean, literally, like the Y2K was this eruption of a death drive that sort of took over. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to try to describe the mass hysteria, yeah. And I think that that wasn't the cause, but that was a catalyst for all these white boys, right? The white the white boy summer of Woodstock '99, <laughs> yeah. To, to and the kind of, of molar milieu of it, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and to so that kind of anarchism that isn't concerned about the future and is trying to take this break, if you will, from the, you know, fuck the authority or whatever, but it really, it's really a a manner of satisfying themselves because you heard from many of them when they're breaking shit, when they're tearing stuff down, when they don't give a fuck, it's not necessarily that the end of the world's coming. That's not what they say. They say we're fucking bored. For me, what was most stark about, some of the one there was a normal guy and he was talking about how he participated i mean at least by appearances a normal average looking guy that participated in the rioting and so forth but he felt a certain sense of community as part of that which i thought that being one of the most fascinating little nuggets of that whole thing and that's why i think that the libidinal economics of that whole thing are so fascinating the way that this you're seeing desire production manifests itself it's all there i don't know I'll, I do. I'll, that's I, the last thing I'll say about it. <laughs> no, I mean, I do think that's interesting when you talk about the the quote unquote normal guy who's finding the sense of community, this belonging. I mean, it's like after yeah, you, uh, you, uh, the sacking of a city, right? It's yeah, kind of the same. You, you didn't see, you saw some stand, some people, some bystanders being like, well, that's just stupid. But you didn't necessarily see an active group trying to stop them. Right. You didn't see groups coalescing in opposition. It was right. more of a passive, well, fuck it. Yeah. So, but, you know, in any case, yeah, I think that this, this question of, because the, the question of, of I am of the superior race, this question of the segregative use of Oedipus, this illegitimate use whereby we invest in the dominant class against our interests, we see this in the apology about capitalism where we're all temporarily inconvenienced millionaires. Yeah. And that sort of the we'll we'll get our we'll get our little silver lining we'll get our our mansion mm-hmm. down the road as long as we we become good capitalist subjects. I feel like that's a good stopping point. Yeah, we, we'll and um, honestly, what's nice about this is we'll come back to these syntheses next episode because the very next section is on the three on the recapitulation of the syntheses. So we'll get to go deeper into them and see the implications of, of the transcendental unconscious, the transcendental materialist unconscious as they formulate it. Nice. There's a couple of passages about simulation here that we'll pick up. I, I say we just incorpor- we'll incorporate those into symbolic exchange in death chapter two. Yep. I've already, I've already made preparations for that. And then I think, so next week we're going to look at mouse is the gift, or at least that's the plan. That is the plan. Yeah, but this will be 
Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour signing off for the week. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.